0: I grew up in the 90s, but the 80s, especially music and movies, still have a special place in my heart. I mean, everything from the fantastic, you might think, music video by the cars, to just all kinds of synths and long outros and crazy guitar solos. The 80s, music, very special. Movies, same type of thing. I mean, how many iconic scenes are there from movies? You got the raised fist at the end of Breakfast Club. You got... Ferris Bueller, chilling all maxin', relaxing all cool. No, that's getting into the 90s. That's the wrong type of thing. Ferris Bueller shot in Chicago, of course. I grew up in Chicago. Love it. Love seeing the city on display. The 80s also seem to have all kinds of almost niche, wacky movies. One of my personal favorites, Adventures in Babysitting with Elizabeth Shue, just a Wonderful movie all around that was nothing like I expected it to be. (laughs) And through all of these movies, we can find plenty of life lessons for both the workplace culture and our own lives. My guest today has made a career out of doing just that. Chris Clues is an author, keynote speaker, and all-around cool guy. His latest book, Raised on the 80s, 30-plus unexpected life lessons from the movies and music that defined pop culture's most excellent decade... Does what the title promises, giving us all kinds of fun life lessons based off of 80s pop culture. So we've got more 80s pop culture references. I would even say just more pop culture references in general than any other episode of Good People, Cool Things. A very impressive feat because we're about 150 into the show now. We're talking about some of the life lessons that resonate the most with people from the book. We talk about 80s relics that we want to bring back from the pop culture And just general life in the 80s as well. Chris is also a huge advocate for rescue animals. He's got a very cute rescue. I've got two very cute rescues. One of them's looking into my soul right now as I record this, and I wouldn't have it any other way. We're chatting about all of that. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. And it'll make you more energized than a Karate Kid punch. Well, I guess that wouldn't energize you. That would probably just hurt little bit to, to take one but maybe delivering the punch it energizes you like that i like it we're back on track with the metaphor i'll leave the lessons to chris because he's much better at them i'm joey held this is good people cool things and here's a conversation with chris clues our first question to kick things off can you give us your name and your elevator pitch but also the type of elevator that we're riding on
1: <laughs> yes uh, chris clues and uh, i'll say we'll We'll make it interesting. We'll ride in a dumb waiter. See if we can actually fit in one of those. I was just watching that the Watcher show and on Netflix. I don't know if you were watch if you watched it, but there a, a dumb waiter is like heavily involved in it. It's a pretty creepy show. It's based on a true story. So we'll say we're growing up in a dumb waiter. Um, or maybe actually if I want to use an eighties reference, we'll go up in the elevator from Shining. How about that? Okay,
0: nice. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> yeah.
1: we <Just, hopefully laughs> don't see those creepy twins. Uh, yeah, so so my name is Chris Clues. I'm a keynote speaker and author, and I focus on Uh, Life Lessons and Workplace Lessons from 80s Pop Culture. I have three books now in my series. Uh, The most recent one is Raised on the 80s. So the first two were focused more on uh, workplace lessons we can learn from 80s pop culture. And this third one is more geared towards life lessons that we can learn from 80s pop culture. Uh, So, yeah, that's that's what I do. I love it. I I get to talk about 80s pop culture every day and I get to get up on stages and give people a, a very different perspective on 80s pop culture and what it can actually uh, teach us.
0: Now despite growing up in the 80s, you did not grow up doing this career and you were in the corporate world prior to this. So what how did you like get get into this? Because I think it's a pretty interesting story.
1: <laughs> yeah. So my uh I guess my origin story is the you know, superhero movies say nowadays, <laughs> my origin story. So yeah, I uh I grew up in the 80s and yeah, I, I was in corporate marketing for 20 plus years. Uh So there's um, Henry David Thoreau, who's not an 80s pop culture icon. He's uh, 1830s or 40s, something (laughs) like that. He said the massive men, we'll call it the massive people today, the massive people lead lives of quiet desperation. And I felt that. I felt this quiet desperation. I really enjoyed marketing. I I still enjoy marketing, but I felt like there was something else out there for me. I just didn't know what it was. So I was in a job that wasn't working out for me. I think we've all probably been there at some point. Maybe some of you are still there. And uh, I was having a self-pity party of one on my couch, as I often do. And uh, (laughs) The Breakfast Club came on, watched it for the hundredth time or so. It always makes me feel better. And uh, John Bender says, screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. Now, I had heard that line every time I saw the movie, but I never really listened to it. And I kind of sat up on my couch. and Yeah, my screws have fallen out. I'm in an imperfect place. What am I going to do to put those screws back in? Uh, am I just going to put the same screws back in and and go out on that, this same journey, as Thoreau said, that quiet desperation? I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes as well, not to keep dropping like these these odd eighteen hundred references to writers. But you know some <laughs> of them wrote some pretty cool stuff. Uh, he said something to the effect of like the saddest thing. I, I'm paraphrasing here uh, is to see someone die with their song still inside of them. And I felt like, you know, my song was still inside of me. I just didn't know what it was. So I I decided I kind of had this epiphany and I thought, wow, I, you know, I'm going to put screws back in an entirely new door, entirely new door door frame, walk out to a new journey. And it was this, and I, I took this idea of screws falling out and I wrote an article on what the breakfast club teaches us about problem solving. And people responded to it, like a lot of people. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. Maybe I've hit something here. So I, I I wrote one on, on Ferris Bueller and work-life balance shocker that that would be a lesson from Ferris. And, uh, (laughs) And it kind of took off from there. I wrote a little book, 60 page book, you know, would have ended up in like Spencer's gifts in a shopping mall back in the day would, would not have been on Walden bookstores Walden books. I think was the, was one of the big ones in back in the day, but, uh, it was 60 pages. My buddy is good at graphic design. We, he helped me design it. We, we uploaded it. The great equalizer of course is self-publishing and you can do it on Amazon. It's very easy to do if a knucklehead, like I can do it. Anybody can. And, uh, had the first book. And I thought, what else can I do? Well, you know, I'm still this, this huge job in marketing. It's taken up a lot of my time, but I built a website, positioned myself as a speaker on this topic of 80s pop culture and what it can teach us, and then uh, built that website. i never built a website before and went from there. And I wrote the second book. I had a friend who was in the speaking agent business, and she said, if you, know, if you decide to leave your job, I'll represent you. And I took that leap of faith at 47 years old. I, I left. Uh, I was not a young entrepreneur. I, I don't think anyway. Um, but Johnny Cade from The Outsiders said, you still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. And I took that advice and I ran with it. And now I'm in front of you today, five years later, with three books and a keynote speaking career.
0: Fantastic. And and <laughs> typically, I like to wait till the end uh, or towards the end of the episode to ask a question you wish you were asked more frequently. But I think that ties in nicely because you said you were 47 when this happened. I think a lot of people think like, you know, I got to do this like right out of college or, you know, or... They don't have the time. Maybe they haven't seen uh, enough '80s movies to learn. Like, hey, wait, I I do still have time for this. So, what's it been like to become an entrepreneur later in life, and what are kind of the pros and cons of it?
1: Yeah. So, I think uh, it's a great question because I there's okay. So, my my background here right now is that I was in a position to you know kind of take that leap of faith, maybe a little more than other people. I have no kids. I was never married. you know, just just me and my dog, Bodhi. and uh, and so I was in a position to be able to say, like, I'm going to walk away from this, and it's going to be, you know, me. I have to be responsible for myself and my dog, but no one else at that moment. And so, it still was scary, though. And I'll tell you that the pros to later entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial move later in life, is that you've learned a lot. You really've lived, a, you know, you've lived a little bit, and you understand. Uh, the world a little bit better, I think. You also understand there are no guarantees. Uh, You may think that you have the best product, the best content, the best service out there, but the reality is other people may not think so. And so there are no guarantees. Uh, You could put in all the work and maybe it doesn't work out. And so you, you you understand that because you've seen people succeed and fail in your life as well. And so you walk into this with maybe a little more of a clearer head, which can be a pro. But it can also be a little bit of a con because as we talk about with kids, you know, when, when kids are three or four or five years old, that's when they teach people teach them to ski or surf. Why? Because they have no fear. And typically when they fall, they don't get hurt. But as you get older, you know, there is that fear that creeps in. And when you fall, you do get hurt. And so whether it's mental or physical. So I think that's maybe the con. I I often say that every day in my entrepreneurial career, I'm going to refer back to the 80s, of course, when I was 13 years old, is, you know, a day of like putting on my football pads and my helmet and running out and smashing into somebody and they smash into me. And it was the best thing ever. So excited. Couldn't wait to do it versus standing on the wall at a middle school dance and wanting to ask my crush if she wants to dance. And it was terrifying. So you take that excitement and that terror, and that's every single day as an entrepreneur, typically when you're an an older one
0: goodness i just had flashbacks to middle school dances just that, uh, that walk across the floor horrific.
1: or the or the, the couple skate i, I, I did the, you know the skate the skating rink when i had those those brown skates oh god yeah uh, i usually just sat and played galaga and then every so often i go out on the on the in the skating rink but yeah that's that's it i mean i you know i i feel like there's a lot more pros to doing it a little bit later in life than there are cons you just know a little bit more you understand what it takes to 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 try to be successful again, because you've seen people succeed and fail. And um, But I, I will tell you, there's a lot of work that goes into it. There's that great meme or poster. I, I don't like these the, the office posters that have like the eagle soaring over the mountains or whatever. But <laughs> there is one that has the iceberg and it says, you know, basically the tip of the iceberg is what people see. But underneath is what they don't see. All the work that goes into building a business or building a keynote speaking career that there's so much stuff that happens underneath the surface and people just see that little tip of the iceberg above that, that you know where you're where you're doing things that people are like wow that's pretty cool
0: what are some of those things that people might be surprised or you tell people like hey i do this and they're like oh i, I didn't realize that was part of it
1: <laughs> yeah uh so i'll tell you the first time that happened to me and it was really pretty incredible to be honest i was in the airport and I was getting ready to fly to a speaking gig and I have what I call my stage shoes. So one good thing that came out of eighties fashion, there's very little, <laughs> by the way, there's a great eighties pop culture gave us great movies, great music, great literature, but uh, really, really not great fashion, but vans. So, you know, vans came out in 66, but they really kind of took, uh, they went to a whole new level with Spicoli wearing the checkboard vans. In Fast Times in 1982, and uh, I have these vans that I design myself. Uh, you can go on their website; they have these great tools to design your own your own vans. Like really, really funky design. And I'm sitting there next to a guy uh, waiting for the flight, and he says, "Oh man, those are pretty wild shoes." And I said, "Thanks." They're my stage shoes. And he said, What "Stage? What do you do?" And I said, "Well, I you know I I've written these books on 80s pop culture and what they could teach us for life and work, and I'm heading to a keynote right now to to be a keynote for." a conference talking about leadership lessons from 80s pop culture. And he looked at me and I'll, I'll substitute the word he said, but he said, how the hell did you pull that off? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I explained to him what's going on. He's like, dude, you you might have the best job in the world. And I, at that moment, I felt like, wow, I'm actually doing something that other people think is cool because, you know, marketing's fun and it's great. And, and I think people are like, wow, that's pretty cool. You're around advertising and stuff. And yeah, but there's, you know, a lot of people that do that and to be able to say that i get on stage and talk about 80s pop culture and what it can teach us there's not a lot of people that can say that and i that was really uh, a pretty amazing humbling moment for me where i was like wow i'm doing something that other people wish they were doing pretty cool
0: yeah that's that's super cool i like that and you mentioned vans i uh, which i think are, are an enduring uh you know, thing that happened that, that kind of rised in popularity in the '80s. Is there a '80s pop culture relic that maybe is in the past that you think we should bring back?
1: <laughs> wow. Uh, yes, actually, I, you know, Stranger Things season three had the mall, and I kind of missed that. To be honest, I mean, I know there's malls that are still around, but you know, in, in the malls that I used to, the mall arcade. I think that's the thing. Like bringing back the arcade. That everybody walks into, and you have, I we have a few down here in South Florida that are, you know, unique. I guess you know they're bars slash arcades. I'd love to see you know the arcades come back. I I I definitely do not want to see parachute pants come back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, and vans, you know, they they are. You're right. They just have really, uh, they they're such a great case study and so many amazing things about how to run a business how to evolve your business. And I had the checkerboard vans because back in the day, uh oh, this is another thing I wish they bring back, movie ushers. So back in the day when you would go into the movies and they actually had somebody who would tell people to be quiet or, you know, I guess they didn't say get off your phone back then, but they said be quiet and they had the flashlight tell you. Uh, I went to see, uh, I paid my $2 to go into CET and I snuck into Fast Times, the best decision I ever made in my entire life <laughs> on so many levels um phoebe cates being one and then of course you know vans (laughs) being the other the checkerboard vans
0: (laughs) oh that is fantastic i don't know if this is a a relic i and i it probably spilled over into the 90s because that's when the bulk of my growing up happened so i but i just miss setting a time to meet somewhere and if you were late like you just missed out like i (laughs) almost just like punctuality but when you you mentioned malls, like that. That was what comes to mind, is because that was such a meeting place for us. You know, we'd we'd meet at the Barnes and Noble at the mall at two o'clock, and if someone happened to be running late, like they didn't have their cell phone to be like, "Hey, I'm running late. Will you all wait for me?" We just we moved on to the next spot, and maybe they'd show up and they'd catch catch up to us somewhere. Like maybe we we had an agenda. Uh, if not, they just would wander around and, you know, maybe maybe we'd cross paths or maybe we'd just see him again at school on Monday.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, you bring up a great point there, too, because uh, I think about the idea of, of things not being kind of at our fingertips as well. And so there is some romanticism, for example, in the idea of Blockbuster uh, or the local mom and pop video store where you walked in on a Friday night. and You didn't know if you were going to get what you wanted. Uh Maybe that movie wasn't there and maybe you sat by the return bin just waiting desperately for that movie to be returned and it didn't come. But the really cool thing was that that human algorithm of that person who worked at the video store who said, oh, you're not, you you know, you're waiting for a movie and I don't think it's going to come tonight. But here are four or five movies like it that I think you might enjoy is so much better than the algorithm on Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these other streamers. Because sometimes they recommend stuff to me. I'm like, what the heck? Did somebody else? Borrow my Netflix? Like, what is happening here? This has nothing to do with anything that I want. And you never had that problem in the, in the video store back in the day.
0: Yeah, almost every email I get from Netflix that's like, "We added a new show you might like." I'm, I said, "Me? <laughs> yeah. Do I have the wrong email set up?" Like, that's <laughs> exactly. Clearly, clearly incorrect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. i And I, so yeah, I think there's, I think a lot of that idea of like the lack of of convenience. Uh, it's nice to have everything at your fingertips, but it's also nice to want something and not necessarily get it when you want it. I mean, that's that was part of the, like I said, that was part of the romanticism of the 80s, I think, and even into the 90s.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you you mentioned how your latest book kind of veers a little bit from workplace and, and focuses more on life lessons. Raised on the 80s, 30-plus unexpected life lessons from the movies and music that define pop culture's most excellent decade. Got through it. Yes, Wonderful. yes, it's a mouthful,
1: <laughs> but it's important. It, I no, I like yeah. A better subtitle, so yeah,
0: I like it. Yeah, and you get you get some good keywords in there. I think it's all it's all. I think very so. Nicely, yeah. it's part of the marketing. Done, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, well? Actually, let's let's talk about that first. Uh, the the marketing side of books, because as you know, you've done three books now. It's not just writing it. You've also got to do the marketing side of things. So. What's something that has worked well with marketing? And has there been anything where you thought like, oh, that's gonna be huge, and then it, it just kind of fizzled?
1: So marketing a book and selling books is really challenging. I that's why there's very few people that make a living at actually selling books. Uh you see some of the best sellers are people that I don't they're clearly not writing their own book. I mean, all you have to do is look at the person and you're like, no, that that celebrity did not write that book. I'm sorry it didn't happen. No way. <laughs> Uh, somebody wrote it for them, but it sells because, you know, their pictures on it or whatever, but putting them aside, there's very few people that make a living at selling books. Now I could be fact-checked on this stat, but what I've heard is that the average book in its lifetime sells 250 copies. You, you can't make a living doing that unless you, you know, you, you pump out a hundred books a year, then maybe you can make a little bit of a living at it. Uh, so the marketing aspect is really challenging and difficult. The best thing that I ever did, honestly, was I invested in a publicity firm. Smith publicity, which I think is how we found each other. And, uh, that was the best investment I ever made. And it was scary again, because making that investment, but I looked at it like this. If I was somebody, an entrepreneur, a small business entrepreneur, and I was opening up a storefront, I've got to buy product and put it in my store on those shelves in the hopes that people will come in and buy the product that I'm selling. There's no guarantee they're going to do that, but I'm making that investment in me because I believe that people are going to want what I'm selling. And so the same thing with the book, I had to make that investment in me and say, you know, th- these are people who know what they're doing. This is what they do. They, they do, you know, the, this is they, they promote authors, they promote books. This is how they do this, is what they do for a career. And I need them to help me. I think that was the best investment I ever made. The scariest one, of course, at the outset, but the best one. The Amazon algorithm was great for me three years ago. I sold a lot of books around the holidays with very little spend. And then all of a sudden I did it the next year and I got got nothing out of it. And it turns out that, hey, they changed the algorithm because the big publishers wanted to have, you know, more uh, visibility than, you know, the the independents and the smaller publishers and the authors like myself. And so it is definitely a tough thing. I would say that if you're making an investment in the time to write a book, you need to. Unfortunately, you're going to need to cut a couple of checks to help you get there, because there are people who know what they're doing. And uh, that's really the, the only way to do it. You can do book signings. People will show up. They won't show up. But, uh, you know, getting a publicity firm, somebody behind you that really knows how to get you out there is the most important thing.
0: Yeah, I think the, uh, that 250 stat, I've heard that as well. So confirming it, it's accurate uh, over the, the lifetime of a book that you sell that. So I think, like, it takes a village. It's the same type of thing as going back to that iceberg poster. Is that underneath? There's a lot going on behind just like oh yeah, I like word vomited sixty thousand words, and here's a book. It's like no, no, no. There's so much that goes into it.
1: Yeah, and and it's a very uh, lonesome process. And for somebody who's an extrovert like myself, uh, you really have to isolate yourself, and you really have to uh, make that decision that you're going to write it because I, you know, I can not tell you how many times I've when people ask me what I do, they're like, oh, I've been you know writing a book for eight years or ten years or twelve years, or I've had this book inside of me, but I haven't. You have to really schedule yourself and say, I'm going to dedicate 30 minutes a day, seven days a week to writing. And believe me, that 30 minutes, sometimes you'll write two lines and that's all you, that's all you have for that day. You just can't do it. There'll be other days where you look up and it's been four hours and you've just pumped through 1,500 words and you're like, wow. But if you don't set aside that time, you're going to be like all the other people who say, "You know, I've been trying to write this book for 10 years or 12 years or what have you. And the great thing about a book is long after you're gone, it'll still be here
0: pretty cool. Yes. Yes, and I can I can vouch for that as well as as the author of one book. It was the same type of thing. I had a bunch of short stories over the years and then I was like, "Wait, I should do something with this." And it wasn't until I actually like sat down, like reread everything, rewrote a lot, started working with the editorial team, design team, like all that good stuff. It but it wasn't until I made that commitment of like, "Yes, I am going to show up for this." So I I fully second retweet whatever 80s I similar to Twitter thing as, you know, similar to retweeting from the eighties, the bop it. I don't know. I bop that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's very, you know, it's, it's a grueling process, but it's very rewarding at the end. There's nothing like actually holding your book in your hands and knowing that you did that. Uh, It's pretty awesome. And uh, I would encourage people, if you're out there and you're thinking about writing a book or you're in the middle of it, the the self-publishing is the great equalizer. 20 years ago, if you wanted a book published, you had to go to one of the big publishing firms. Good luck. Uh, Now you have all these self-publishing tools and you can do it on your own. I mean, the barriers have been dropped in terms of at least publishing the book.
0: Yes, it it is pretty amazing just to... I mean, I wasn't... Looking to publish books in the 90s, but just from what I've I've read and heard from other people who were working in the industry back then, just like how how much has changed since then, it's wild.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's awesome. It's the the Wild West a little bit, and anybody can publish one, and that's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, go for it. Yes. So, in the title of the book, we've <laughs> got 30 plus unexpected life lessons. Do you have a favorite life lesson out of the bunch?
1: Yeah, I, actually, it's hard for me to pick a favorite, but I will tell you one that seems to be resonating a lot with people. Uh, and it happens to be a movie that has three, just icons, uh, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, and no, it's not. Jamie Lee Curtis is not playing some victim of a slasher. Uh, so for those of you that only kind of know her from the Halloween franchise, uh, it's trading places and it's a fantastic comedy. Uh, it's also a holiday or Christmas movie. Uh, you don't hear it. Talked about, but it definitely is. And so I I won't get too much into spend a lot of time on the plot, but the gist of it is that Billy Ray Valentine is Eddie Murphy's character. He, when we meet him, he's a con man on the street, very, very, very smart guy. And I won't tell you how this happens, but he ends up as a commodities broker from being a con man on the street to a commodities broker. And Louis, who is played by Dan Aykroyd, ends up going from the commodities broker to the street um, and has to kind of fend for himself where he meets Jamie Lee Curtis, who kind of helps him a little bit there. Or a lot, I should say. So the first day that Billy Ray Valentine is at this commodities broker's job, uh, he gets out of the Rolls Royce, he looks up at the building, and he looks at Coleman the butler who's driven him there and the chauffeur, and he says, you know, what if I can't do this job? What if I'm not good enough? And Coleman says, just be yourself, sir. They can't take that away from you. Now, if that was the only lesson, just be yourself. There's plenty of movies in the 80s that give us that. Breakfast Club is a great example. You know, Andrew says all of us are a little bizarre. Some of us are just better at hiding it. That's all, you know, there's some really great lessons, uh, about, you know, being yourself, but it goes deeper than that. So as I told you, he was on, he was on the street and suddenly he becomes this, this commodities broker quickly. Uh, but we all know he can do this job. We see how intelligent he is. He just doesn't, he doesn't believe it. This imposter syndrome that we talk about these days, uh, where it's why me, why did I get this job? Why do I have this opportunity? And so I got out of this scene and this line, this lesson about how confident people, you can still be you know confident and question yourself. The confident people question themselves. Arrogant people question others. And I think it's really important because people think, well, if I'm questioning myself, am I really good at what I do? Yes, you are. That's why you're questioning yourself. It's the only way to get better is to say, you know, did I do the good job? Did I do this right? Where could I have done a little bit better? Constantly question yourself is how you're going to get better. I do it before I get on stage all the time. Am I going to do a good job? Are they going to like me? Am I going to hit all the you know the lines that I want to hit? It's It keeps you sharp and on your toes. And by the way, if you don't question yourself, where do you go? Well, if you maybe you've decided you're perfect and you don't need to question yourself anymore and then the words of the church lady, Eden, Enid Strick, isn't that special? But, uh, <laughs> but, for the you know, or you go what? The other direction, which is to, to start pointing fingers and questioning other people, which is where the arrogance comes in. So confident people question themselves, arrogant people question others. And there's a whole kind of lesson in that chapter on that.
0: That's fantastic. Was there (laughs) a movie or a song that you wanted to get in this book, but you just couldn't find a good way to do it? Or did you get everything in that you wanted?
1: Yeah, actually, it's it's, it's funny you say that. So I actually had a movie in there that I took out and replaced it with another one. Uh, It was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And, you know, of course, be excellent to each other. But that's, that that's too obvious. Like, I like to find the lessons a little bit deeper than that, although I probably would have played off that a little. Uh, but at the time that I was writing the book, Bruce Willis came out with the, you know, the whole, uh, I'm not, I don't know the the exact um, issue that he has, but basically that he's no longer going to be able to work anymore. Um, he has that memory issue, I think now and, and I, I thought, you know, I loved Bruce Willis growing up, and he really spent decades entertaining us. He certainly entertained me, um, all the way from Moonlighting to his his role on Friends, and then, of course, all of the Die Hard movies and everything else. I mean, he's just had a fantastic career. And I thought, you know what? I want to put a movie in here. I want to do my kind of thank you to Bruce Willis. And so I put Die Hard in instead of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, just as a nod to him to say thank you for all the years of entertaining us.
0: Are you in the camp of, I know that this seems like the wildest debate every year of if Die Hard's a Christmas movie or not.
1: <laughs> it's 100% a Christmas movie. And I tell people, look, first of all, it was right around Christmas. By the way, his wife invites him out for the Christmas party. So it's definitely a Christmas movie. And then at the end, uh, they're playing uh, Christmas Time and Hollis run DMC. And there's actually a conversation about that song when, when he gets into the limo uh and that song is playing he's like don't you have any christmas music like, man this is christmas music it's great <laughs> like it's you know and so yes there's there's 100 a christmas movie and by the way so is gremlins for those of you out there gremlins is a christmas movie as well so <laughs> yeah.
0: i agree on both cats. both cats <laughs> <laughs> now you you alluded to this with questioning yourself sometimes where before you're about to go on stage if people are gonna like it and as a performer, we're talking beforehand, I play in a band, I always like hearing worst gig stories. So what's one of your worst speaking gigs?
1: You know, I think, I think the, the worst one for me was when I didn't get the laughs at the jokes that I had put in. And these are not like chicken run across the road type of jokes. These are jokes that are embedded into the presentation that are important to the lesson itself. Uh, there's a, actually, I talk about the, the one, the one that really always gets an uproar and people get really upset with me. And I I feel like they're going to put me in a stockade and throw rotten fruit at me when I talk about this, but this particular audience just snooze through it. And it's, uh, that I love Patrick Swayze, but there's one Patrick Swayze movie I have not seen and the movie's dirty dancing and people lose their ever loving mind when I say that I haven't (laughs) seen it. (laughs) but I have a good reason for it. It's about, you know, my prom and the theme song being now I had the time of my life and I had to hear that song 150 times. And it's, you and I talked about, I was not into that, that type of music when I was in high school and I wanted home sweet home by Motley Crue. I lost badly in that <laughs> Uh But you know, I was like, Hey, when we come back for reunions, this is perfect. Home sweet home. Uh, so I had to hear that song 150 times that night. It was on all the favorites. I have night terrors about that song. I can honestly say I did leave baby in the corner. I put her there and I left her there. Uh, But when I told told that joke, as you're laughing here, that's, I get the laughs and I get the groans from people. They come up to me afterwards. Like, how could you not see Dirty Dancing? You have to see it. None of that. Nothing. It was like crickets. Like, oh God, this is not good. But I, but I knew, I think probably like you, if you've ever had a gig where people did just, just you felt like they weren't feeling the music like most of the time that you have those games, or maybe some people didn't show up like they were saying they were going to show up. Uh, But in particular, when they're not feeling the music, and you know, you know that you have good music, you know that you're performing good music, because, you know, nine, nine out of 10 times or 95% of the time people are digging it. It just wasn't a weird night or a weird, weird audience. And that's okay. It happens to everybody.
0: I like the idea that that entire crowd also hadn't seen Dirty Dancing. So it was just like, oh, yeah, that sounds normal. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was really, yeah. I mean, maybe they had seen it, but nobody got into an uproar, which is what happens. They didn't get upset with me. And I, I really, I I wanted them to be upset with me. You know, I wanted them to shame, <laughs> shame from like the Monty Python movies. So.
0: <laughs> All right, we're going to take a little bit of a turn, uh, but it's still, it's still about you and what you do. So perhaps it's just more of a 360 look. Something else that you're very big into is rescue animal advocacy. And I mean, I have two rescue dogs. They're right here being very calm. As soon as I said that, let's watch them go nuts now. But uh, (laughs) and I, I, I mean, they're the only dogs I've ever had. So they're obviously like near and dear to my heart. I can't imagine having not gotten rescue dogs. They're just they're so wonderful. You have a rescue dog as well why is this such a big deal for you and what's what's some of the things that you're you're doing as part of your rescue animal advocacy
1: yeah so i i was lucky to grow up in a family that really advocated for rescue animals my grandmother was doing it in the 40s and 50s uh and you know before it was really kind of mainstream or out there she was already recognizing this and every and every dog that they had growing up and they had a lot of them and cats they were all rescues um my mom and and my mom was a huge advocate as well, and so uh, yeah, I actually. So there's a great lesson. Uh, Dead Poet Society. John Keating, played by Robin Williams, plays the high school teacher at the you know very elite boarding school where all these students have been set told like, walk. You're going to go from point A to point B in your life. You're going to be exactly what the family wants you to be, whether that's an attorney, a doctor, what have you. God forbid you go into the creative arts. Cannot go into the creative arts. Um, so. He says to them, you know, the Carpe Diem thing, I think, is what everybody, you know, mostly remembers from that Poets Society. But he says something more important. He says, no matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. And they can, actually, you know. And so back when I was growing up in the 80s, if I wanted my words and ideas out to the world, I could go to my local newspaper, Community Times, and maybe 13 people would read it. And that was about it. Uh, but now in the palm of our hand, we all have the ability to get our words and ideas out to the world in a moment. And we don't have to be a politician or a world leader or an athlete or a celebrity. You know, it's the great equalizer. I talked about self-publishing being a great equalizer. So is this idea that you can get our words and ideas out to the world. That's, that's talk to talk, but you got to walk the walk and walk, the walk is taking action. And for me, that's, that's animal rescue. And I have my pit mix, Bodhi. We talked about him earlier. He's a 80 pounds of muscle and he's just the sweetest dog ever. And he's named after, uh, uh, Patrick Swayze's character in point break. And, um, not an '80s movie, but a fantastic one. Uh, Johnny Utah, Bodie—I mean, yeah—I you know, think just the character names are great. So, and I think uh Anthony Kiedis is has a small role in Point Break as well. He plays Ooh. like a surfer protecting his his break. Yeah,
0: nice. I don't. Yeah, I know I've seen Point Break, but it's been a while. I might need to go back and keep an eye out. I assume he's shirtless. Ah, uh,
1: I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. And, I mean, it's really quick, but you could, you know, you'll, you know, music, so you're going to know it's him. Uh, so, you know, Bodie came into my life in August of 2020 and, and, and he was found on the street by a couple of cops in Miami, three months old, paralyzed, couldn't go to the bathroom, bugs all over him. He was, you know, in the end stage, uh, he had dragged himself out to the sidewalk to, to try to live and they scooped him up, took him to a rescue that I follow. And I followed his story. And when he was ready for adoption, I snagged him quickly. Cause I called the lady who ran the, the, the rescue and I said, I had this connection with him. And she said, he may not make it. And I said, he's going to make it and we're going to be together. And so, August 2020, I get him. Well, little did I know all these events were going to happen in my life. This is why rescue animals are so important because they're resilient and they help you be resilient as well. Uh, in March of 2021, my girlfriend that uh, I've been dating for a year and a half now, when we met, I knew she had this journey that she needed to go on. And so, I knew this, she wasn't going to be here forever. And that was okay. I, One thing I've learned as I've gotten older is you do not get in the way of somebody else's journey, even if it doesn't include you. You, you, People need to chase their journey. It's important. She got an RV. She took off. She lives in Oregon now on the coast of Oregon. She's very happy doing her thing, and I'm happy for her. But it was hard for me. She left in March 2021. April 2021, my stepmom, been in my life for 40 years, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, dies three weeks later. July of 2021, my mom dies of Alzheimer's. So I'm like in the middle of this country song. (laughs) <laughs> um, where it's just, you know, like, man. Uh, but all along I had Bodie next to me, uh, no matter how I was feeling, he was right there. Um, you know, he kept me going. He made me happy every day. He made me laugh every day. And I got to tell you, rescued is the best breed. It is the best breed. Uh, and please, if you're out there, I, I donate a portion of the proceeds from my books and my speaking gigs to wonder Paul's rescue, which is the rescue in Fort Lauderdale that saved Bodie. Uh, please adopt, don't shop. There's so many that need homes, especially right now. These rescues are over; these these they're overflowing right now. The shelters are overflowing, and they're having to, to euthanize dogs that that don't they shouldn't be euthanized. Just please, if you're thinking about a dog rescue one, trust me, it'll be the best decision that you ever made.
0: Yes, co-sign these two <laughs> these two knuckleheads. They're not knuckleheads; they're lovely. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, he's a knucklehead. They're best decision. They're yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is gonna be a a. a question that resonates with probably about one and a half percent of the people listening but if I uh, you're near enough to Fort Lauderdale are you are you based in Fort Lauderdale
1: I'm in Deerfield Beach okay, about 30 okay. minutes north yeah
0: okay nice so have you been to the Roundup in Fort La- <laughs> or in Davie I guess is, is I
1: have been to the Roundup a long <laughs> long time ago yeah
0: <laughs> I so I went to the University of Miami and that was uh, for college and that was like one of our go-to spots was driving up to Davy to go to the roundup country line dancing bar uh, you mean
1: the- you didn't go to space at six in the morning was space <laughs> around when you were there
0: i think so i i never <laughs> made it there but I, I did hear um i mean i heard yeah. plenty of stories of places got
1: it's busiest at like five in the morning and it closed <laughs> at like 11 or 12 it's so weird i only went once there i have been a Roundup though yes
0: Oh, what I what a time. Just what a time. Yeah. I'm hopefully still thriving. I don't know. I haven't checked it in, in the it's last still, oh
1: yeah, it's still out there. Is it? Yep. Nice. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's hopefully the
0: same group of people.
1: <laughs> I, I would imagine that if they were there then, they're probably still there now doing their line dance thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Amazing. All right, Chris, you're almost off the hook, but we always like to wrap up with a top three. And we've been chanting the 80s this whole episode, which makes sense. It'd be weird to chat another decade. But what are your top three underrated 80s movies?
1: Yeah, so I'll give you three, uh, obviously, because you asked for the top three. (laughs) Duh. All right, talk about a knucklehead. All right, so here's three for you. Uh, One is Vision Quest, and uh, that one is a wrestling movie with Matthew Modine. He plays a high school wrestler who wants to try to beat the state champ who nobody's ever beaten. It's a really great movie. Amazing soundtrack. That's the thing about 80s movies is they had great soundtracks. All the bands and musicians, they wanted to be on the soundtracks. As we talked about earlier, there were very few channels to get your content out in the 80s. And if you were a musician, one of those ways was to be on a soundtrack. Great soundtrack. Uh, A couple of little factoids about Vision Quest. Number one, if you love sports movies and you like just like a good like rah-rah, like happy movie, this is this is one for you. Uh, if you love Jake Ryan, and I know a lot of people out there do, you get another bite at the Jake Ryan apple because he plays Michael Schafflin plays Cooch, who is uh, Matthew Medine, Loudon Swain's best friend in the movie. So you get another bite at the Jake Ryan apple before he took off from Hollywood. Also, you get a little cameo from Madonna, a very young Madonna who is plays a bar singer and she's singing crazy for you in the bar during, uh, in a bar scene during the movie.
0: Nice. pretty that's cool, great. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that's one, uh, number two would be three o'clock high. Uh, three o'clock high is a fantastic movie. It's, it's one day in a high school, a kid who it's, um, I can never say his name. Casey says Moscow. God, I always <laughs> screw up his name. He was in young guns and a bunch of other, anyway, uh, he's a kid who runs the school store. Back in the day, we had school stores in our, in our school where you bought your, Your supplies before school or after school, your notebooks and erasers that were shaped like aliens, stuff like that. And uh, he runs a school store and there's a kid who comes into the school uh, and he is coming from another school where he's been expelled. And his name is Buddy Ravel. And I got to tell you, he's played by Richard Tyson. If you ever saw Kindergarten Cop, uh, Richard Tyson played the bad guy in Kindergarten Kindergarten Cop. He plays the best bully of all time, Buddy Ravel. And the entire movie is... The kid basically, uh, the kid who works at the school store, uh, Jerry Mitchell, he touches Buddy's shoulder when they're in the bathroom together because he's saying, hey, I want to do an interview for the school paper. You're the new student. And he says, don't touch me. Don't don't ever touch me. Now, now we're going to fight at three o'clock after school and there's nothing you can do about it. And the entire movie <laughs> is this kid trying to get out of the fight with the bully. Uh, yeah. Great, great movie. Very underrated. And the third one would be Lucas. Lucas is a movie that I think um, it's a great movie about bullying and the other, three o'clock high is too, but it's more in like a, it's, it's, it's a little, it's much darker. Uh, it's dark, it's a dark comedy. It's a great movie, dark comedy, but Lucas Corey Haim, uh, I think his, probably his best role, to be honest with you. I mean, I maybe the lost boys cause lost boys was such a great movie, but Lucas, uh, Charlie Sheen uh, it has a great cast and it's basically about this kid who, you know, he's, he's a little, you know, quote unquote nerdy and he catches butterflies that's what he does and he falls in love with the he has a crush on the head cheerleader and of course you know he doesn't know how to ask her out uh but then the football players catch wind of it and Charlie Sheen's player the guy who dates her and they give him a hard time and eventually just like every 80s movie it has a happy ending i you know it's it, but it's a really great movie about bullying and and the the um what can happen when everybody gets behind somebody who needs some support and i think that it's a movie that should be shown in high schools in middle schools to be honest with you, I think it's that good of a movie and that important of a message, uh, but the the movie is called Lucas. Um, highly recommend it
0: nice I've never seen lucas i need to I need to watch it now
1: <laughs> so good, so good yeah
0: and this yep. is just a follow up question because the the plot of three o'clock high made me think i don't I don't think I was ever in a fight in middle school or high school. If I was, I certainly don't remember it. Um, But I I never had that, you know, after school, we're doing this. And I don't even think I even saw a fight happen. Like, I'm I'm sure, you know, playing sports, like, scuffles break out sometimes. But it was never like circle of people, two people in the middle, outside of maybe dance battles um, that I've seen since since graduating high school. But have (laughs) you were you in a fight in school ever?
1: Yeah, (laughs) I was in the middle of that circle multiple
0: times. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yes. And, uh, I, I do think that there is, you know, um, there's something to be said for being knocked on your back and being at the, the person who has knocked you down has kind of the control over what they're going to do. And, and, and I had that happen when I was 13 or 14 years old and it does change your, it does change your perspective when you've been in that situation uh but yeah i had my share and um some i came out of unscathed and others uh i did not and one in particular i was lucky that the that the kid was not with cobra kai and he actually showed me some mercy because <laughs> otherwise it would have been pretty bad so uh <laughs> yeah yeah i had a few
0: well you made it out none the worse for wear uh, so it's I, a- I,
1: yeah i did I, I i did some bouncing at bars when i got out of college and so i but yeah, there there came a point where my dad just said, hold on a second, let me get this straight. You have a college degree and you're getting paid 8000 an hour to break up fights with no dental plan. <laughs> like, I, He's like, I never really thought you were that smart, but man, I really thought, you know, a little more IQ than that.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This was fantastic. If people want to learn more about you and want to pick up a copy, I'd say of all three books, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. So chrisclues.com, C H R I S C L E W S.com. You can find information on me there for keynote speaking, videos, books, uh, anything that you want in terms of my content or to learn about me is that's the best place to go. Uh, My books are on Amazon. Uh, All three books are on Amazon and paperback and Kindle as well. Um, They're also in other bookstores. Unfortunately, I don't know where because when people when other bookstores and places buy it, you don't really know who's buying it. You just see that the copies are going out the door. And then also for social media, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Chris clues, eighties, uh, Twitter. Shocking. I got at eighties pop culture. Oh, wow. I have no idea how that was available a few years ago, but I got it. And, uh, and so, yeah. And if anybody out there is, you know, has some money laying around and they want to buy it, I'm, we can talk uh 80s pop culture no i I will never give it up uh and then chris clues on linkedin facebook uh and then also on youtube
0: fantastic that's very impressive with the the twitter handle i always i mean (laughs) maybe maybe less so now with the state of where twitter might be going but anytime someone's like oh yeah i got this like first name like jeff handle just yeah very right. impressive
1: <laughs> yeah not jeff two three six four five eight nine twelve it's no jeff i'm jeff i'm at jeff it's pretty cool yeah yeah i couldn't believe it i just typed it in for the hell of it i'm like i '80s pop culture and boom but i it's available i'm like this is not gonna be available for long
0: yeah so. <laughs> sold <laughs> sold for sold. free i guess because twitter um so, yeah although right. maybe yeah. for eight dollars now to get <laughs> eight dollars now <laughs> i got in
1: ahead ahead of time so
0: yeah Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you again. This is so much fun.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate it, Joey. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I do want to just quickly say that I really appreciate it because, you know, it, it's guys like you that, that give, you know, and, and gals that give us a voice, you know, being me, an independent author and keynote speaker, and others, I'm sure as well. You give us the megaphone, and I know that the work that goes into the back end of creating a podcast and getting it out there. And I truly, truly appreciate that you have given us the opportunity to get our voices out there.
0: Well, thank you. That was so lovely to hear. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much. Appreciate, <laughs> appreciate it. it.
0: Absolutely. And we got to end with a corny joke, as we always do. I even found a nice '80s themed one. What's wrong with Bonnie Tyler's GPS?
1: Uh, I you get you got
0: me stumped. It keeps telling me to turn around, and every now and then oh, it okay. falls apart. <laughs> oh, get after it today, can people.
1: I, can I just? Tell, <laughs> I was gonna. I thought you were gonna pull one out of like a truly tasteless joke book. Uh, can I just tell you that every time I hear that song now, all I can think about is, um, uh, is it old school or wedding crashers? The yes, Dan old band. School. I think it was old school,
0: old the school, Dan yeah. band.
1: Now I can never like hear that song the same anymore after hearing the Dan band do it in their, their interesting way.
0: Same, uh, <laughs> same.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Joey. I appreciate it. And, uh, everybody out there stay
0: rad.